Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions, with your host, Reverend Paul John Roach. Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. Today we begin an exploration of practical mysticism, which is the great gift and uh, wonder, if you like, of direct experience here and now. And we start with the highly lauded poet, professor of psychology and spiritual teacher, Steve Taylor. Steve is chair of the transpersonal psychology section of the British Psychological Society. Um, He's the author of several books and has appeared annually since 2011 on Watkins Mind, Body, Spirit magazine's list. I should say Body, Mind, Spirit, I guess, magazine's list of the world's 100 most spiritually influential living people. Glad he's alive. Uh, today, we'll look at some of the, the poems in his recent book, which is entitled The Clear Light, Spiritual Reflections and Meditations, which is published as an Eckhart Tolle edition by New World Library. So it's a joy to welcome all the way from Great Britain, uh, Steve Taylor, to today's show. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Great to be with you. Yeah, we had a little bit of a glitch there getting us going, but here we are, and uh, it's a it's a joy to have you on the show. And yeah, this this is a book of uh, several poems, isn't it? Um, which you could sport, call very spiritual poems, I guess. Your your main task is to convey uh, spiritual messages, and I think the best way to approach the show is is simply to take some of the poems, right? And um, we can read yeah. them and uh, and maybe reflect upon them for a little bit. Does that sound good? Yeah, that would that would be great. Yeah, that's definitely the best way of doing it. I agree. Okay, so let me read the first one, and then maybe you'll read some as well. Um, yeah. and I think it's it's very apropos. Of course, you've chosen it to be the first poem in the book, but it's very apropos for any meeting of people who've never met before, or actually for anybody meeting uh, to meet uh, in a unique way each time. And it's called meeting purely in presence. Let's meet without pretense, without hierarchies of status or artificial shows of respect, without trying to impress each other with our knowledge or charm or humor. Let's meet without fear of exposing our vulnerabilities, without being embarrassed by our need for love or pretending to be self-sufficient. Let's meet without the past, 
without letting our urge to connect be obstructed by old resentments, without letting our natural empathy be blocked by hard, fixed prejudice. Let's meet without insecurity, knowing that we don't have to prove that we're worthy of each other's affection, since love doesn't need to be earned or gained, but simply allowed to flow. Let's meet without intentions, without any designs or goals, knowing we don't have to try to relate to each other, because we've already related, knowing that there's nothing we need to do except allow ourselves to be. Let's meet purely in presence, without any conditions or concepts, knowing that in essence, we are the same, and that in being, we are one. Wow, powerful poem, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was uh, very nicely read, if I may say so. It was, it was great. Thank to... you. Thank you. <laughs> I read them myself usually, so it's quite rare for me to hear somebody else read them. Uh-huh. Cool. Well, um, what I love about it, of course, is, uh, you know, there's so many things that um, we added extras, we could say, right, that we add to any uh, conversation we might have or, or any interaction or even the interaction we have with ourselves. You know, we, we, we make mm. up a lot of stuff about past and future, about, like you said, old resentments, uh, fears that we're not worthy, etc., and, and really, yeah. all these are constructs, aren't they, that we don't necessarily have to have to That's still true. be ourselves, right? Yeah, it's actually quite quite rare for people to meet purely in presence. Like you say, we, we carry so much stuff around with us. You know, when you meet somebody, you know, you carry around the future and the past. You have in, maybe have intentions about what will come of the meeting. Maybe you have some memories of when you met the person before and some problems that you had with them. So there are all kinds of things, you know, maybe it's prejudice, maybe you got prejudice against this person or the group that they belong to. So you take all of these things and it means that you don't really meet the person. You know, you, you meet your ideas about the person rather than the person themselves. So really, we need to let go of everything when we meet somebody so that we can be purely present to them and so that we can really get to know them. And, that, and like you said, that, that applies to ourselves as well, even when we, we have time alone with ourselves. We don't really meet ourselves because, again, we have thoughts about the things we've done, the things we're going to do, ideas about the way we behave, about the kind of people we are. So it's all it's all a barrier between us truly meeting ourselves or between purely meeting other people. You know, you say in another poem in the book, and I can't remember exactly which one, but that doesn't matter really, um, that it's it, we can actually overcome this, you know, all these uh, levels, these hides or skins we have around ourselves, that we can live spontaneously. It's not impossible. Whereas other people say, yeah, that's that's nice. It sounds nice, but uh, I, this stuff has been with me, you know, for 60, 70 years of my life. I don't think I'm going to get rid of it. It's just who I am. So how would you respond to people who say that, you know, that uh, I've got habits that I've tried to get rid of, ways of looking that, you know, I would prefer not to have, but they're, they're so ingrained that they, you know, they're there. They, there's nothing I can do about them. Well, I understand that because it's such a familiar part of human experience. But, you know, in reality, it's all due to thoughts. You know, whenever you have concepts or constructs or images about yourself, it's all related to thoughts. Sometimes thoughts are, are kind of random associations which flash through our minds, but sometimes they are quite heavy, rigid patterns 
which keep recurring in our minds, you know, ideas about the kind of people we are, the kind of life we've led and so on. But it's all just thoughts. So if you, you know, if you enter any situation or any meeting with another person without thought, then, you know, you let go of all of that. So the key really is to have a quiet mind. And, you know, there are many ways that you can develop a quiet mind. You can do it through meditation, but you can also do it through walking in the countryside, through swimming, through running, through being attentive to your experience in the present moment. And, you know, and it's also a cumulative, a cumulative thing. The more you practice mental quietness, the more you try to cultivate mental quietness, the stronger it becomes, you know, the easier it becomes. So, you know, it's, it's a question really of developing the, the habit of having a quiet mind rather than a, than a mind, rather than a mind that thinks all the time. Right. Yeah. And, and I like that, you know, that, uh, you, you can't really hold two thoughts at once, can you? You know, there's the one is going to be there. That's going to predominate over, over you. So if you choose mm. to have, you know, a, 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 a an accepting thought or a relaxed, quiet mind thought, then, you know, that's, that's what reality is for that moment. So, and if you can become, you know, habituated to that, then the life begins to change. And I, I sincerely believe that, you know, we renew constantly, don't we? Um, I think this is true in relationships, you know, successful relationships, whether it be with a, a spouse or a friend, uh, are renewing, right? You, you, you're not, you're mm. not in love with the same person, um, you know, at any one time, there, there's that sense of uh, if it's going to be successful, right? You see them anew. You're, there's almost an awe yeah. about the way you approach them. Um, you have another poem about yeah. that. You know, the, the simplest things: um, a wooden spoon floating in a in a tub of uh, w you know soapy water or whatever. The light on That's the right. wall, you know, is is just as miraculous as you know going to the Grand Canyon or or, or whatever else. So it's it's like it's all here, right? It, it's just a question of um, opening to it, open to this naturalness that's around yeah. us always. Yeah, it's a question of paying attention, really, because we're we're always surrounded with familiar things. You know, we we live in houses that we lived in for a certain amount of time. We live in places that we've lived in for a certain amount of time. We live with people who are familiar to us or pets who are familiar to us. But um. But just because something is familiar, it doesn't mean that you don't need to pay attention to it or that you don't, you know, you can't relish it or appreciate it. Because often, you know, there's so much beauty around us, so much aliveness around us, but we don't pay attention to it simply because it's familiar. So, it's, so sometimes it's just a question of bringing your attention onto familiar things, um, as I describe in, in that poem. Shall, shall I read that poem? Yeah, sure. That'd be great. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember what it's called now. Uh, oh I remember. I wrote it down. It's on my list here. Um, <laughs> Fancy not being able to remember my own poems. <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot of them, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can go to another one until we find it. Would you like to read the uh, another one? I like is the Alchemy of Acceptance. You've got two, but this is the first one. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'll read that one. Um, okay. And yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about it uh, afterwards. So yeah, so this is the, the Alchemy of Acceptance. Actually, I had another book of poems published five years ago called The Calm Center. And there was a poem in that book called The Alchemy of Attention. So this is kind of like a, a sequel to that. 
uh-huh. the alchemy of attention is the kind of thing we were just talking about how that when you pay real attention to the things around you your vision of them transforms suddenly they become become much more real and much more beautiful this kind of the veil of familiarity seems to fade away and suddenly you sense the realness of things so this is a similar principle but it's about acceptance so this is the alchemy of acceptance Emptiness can be a vacuum, cold and hostile, dark with danger. Or emptiness can be radiant space, glowing with soft stillness. And the only difference between them is acceptance. A task may seem tedious, a chore to rush through reluctantly. Or a task may seem rewarding, a process to relish with an attentive mind that reveals more richness the more present you become. And the only difference between them is acceptance. Pain may seem unbearable, searing through you from a sharp concentrated point so that you have no choice but to resist, to try to escape, to push away the pain. Or pain can be a sensation that you can move towards and merge, towards and merge with that no longer has a center that dissipates through your being until it becomes soft and numb, no longer pain at all. And the only difference between them is acceptance. Trauma can break you down to nothing, destroy the identity you spent your whole life building up, like an earthquake that leaves you in ruins. Or trauma can transform you break open new depths and heights of you, give rise to a greater structure, a miraculous new self. And the only difference between them is acceptance. Life can be frustrating, full of obstacles, with desires for a different life disturbing your mind. Or life can be fulfilling, full of opportunities, with a constant flow of gratitude for the gifts you have. And the only difference between them is acceptance. And we call that the knife edge. <laughs> the knife edge. <laughs> you know, that, that, that razor's edge between um, the two choices we have on any given time. If we can, if we can, I think the Hindus talk about that. You know, if you can walk the the razor's edge between those two polarities, right? Then everything opens up to you. You know, I don't think people like the idea often in the idea of acceptance because it sounds like it's too passive yeah. or whatever, you know, we're, we're supposed to be active and make a difference and fix everything and have a list of goals and everything. If I'm going to accept everything, then I've given up kind of thing. But really a, a deep acceptance is much more creative than that, isn't it? Yeah, it, it doesn't mean that. No, I mean, even if um, there are bad things in your life, you know, you can still practice acceptance on them. And it doesn't mean that you don't change them. But in order to change them, you have to accept them first. Um, right. So in order, you know, in order for your life to run smoothly, you have to, you know, have an attitude of acceptance. When you resist aspects of your life, it creates a duality between you and the way things are. It creates a conflict between you and the way things are. But if you accept things, then suddenly there's a sense of ease. Your resistance falls away. There's a sense of oneness 
with you and your life because you're no longer resisting fighting against what is. And things like aging and death are a good example because so many people resist the aging process. You know, even me, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm starting to bald and get older now. I'm in my 50s. And I'm thinking, oh, what's happening to my hair? You know, but, <laughs> but um, I'm th- another part of me is thinking, well, you know, this is just it's completely inevitable. I have to accept it. There's no choice. You know, what can you do? You have to accept things that which you can't change. And when you do accept them, then then you, you know, you 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 feel a sense of grace. You know, you you feel the sense of flowing along with your life rather than resisting it. Right. So that's what it's all about, really. You know, for many years, I've had a, a tagline on my emails and other uh, correspondence that simply says, be present to what is. And mm. uh, for me, that sums it up. You know, it's it, being present to what is, of course, is an acceptance, isn't it? It's uh, it's being it's facing everything without avoidance, if you like, you know, um, yeah. you can't accept something. There's a certain resistance there. You know, you're not you're not being present. And uh, being present is is a very powerful place to be, it seems, because then, Mm. you know, as Kafka said, you know, the universal dance in ecstasy at our feet, you know, when we can we can simply be present to anything at any time. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit like children. I often think that there are certain aspects of spiritual awakening, which are like returning to the state of of childhood. Right. And yes. if you look at young children, you know, they're, they're oblivious to the future. They're oblivious to the past. They live purely in the present moment and they accept everything which comes in the present moment. You know, the, and, and the world seems incredibly fresh and invigorating and beautiful to them because they are present. Absolutely. But as we yep. get, yeah. As we get older, you know, our conceptual minds start to develop. We start to desire things. We start to wish for things we don't have. And we start to, you know, run away from the present. I think this is why we have grandchildren. You know, I'm I'm, I'm a <laughs> grand granddad four times now, and um, wow. it's an absolute joy because it's exactly as you say. You know, you you get to be with these wonderfully spiritual beings. You know, they may be tiny, yeah. but they're they're so open to the now, to what is, and to the joy of the now too. You know, everything is yeah. a wonder, and uh, so to be with them is to, is to receive that blessing and. Uh, yeah, of incalculable uh, worth, I think. You know, it's a, it's a, it's one of the consolations of the grey <laughs> hair and the, and the hair falling out and whatnot. You know. Yeah, I can, I completely agree. In yeah. fact, I remember, I remember when my son, my first son was born. I've got three kids now, and the oldest one is seventeen. So seventeen years ago, when he was born, actually, when he was about two years old, we were walking to the post office uh, along along a golf course, along a path by a golf course. And, you know, two-year-old kids are always stopping. They're always stopping to look at things, always turning around in the wrong direction. And I was getting a little bit frustrated. We need to get to the post office. But then I thought, forget that. I'll just join in with him. So I started (laughs) to look at things. (laughs) I started to touch the leaves. I started to look at the crisp packets on the floor. And I thought, wow, this is great. You know, so I'd given up my resistance to the present. And then I sort of entered into the present with him and started to enjoy each experience. You know, and it it was brilliant. It was a real lesson in you know, how, yeah, how having children can be a return to the childhood state for you yourself. And it's all here right now under our noses. You know, that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's available at any time. It's just we, we're so busy getting, our, you know, going to the post office or whatever that we don't notice <laughs> yeah. it. I, I remember Alan Parsons. I don't know if you know him. He was a spiritual teacher in Britain. And um, he wrote a book called As It Is. And 
his big breakthrough Ooh, right. was uh, at lunchtime. He was walking through the park and uh, he realized that every step he made was gone forever. And, and yet each new step was a new, uh, you know, creation. And he wasn't mm. just walking across the park. He, he was bringing eternity with him, you know. Uh, that there was only this moment, this one step followed by the next step, which flowed, you know, in, in infinity uh, around him and within him. And uh, it was a tremendous breakthrough. I don't think he was, that was his moment of epiphany, I think. Um, but it's the yeah. same idea, you know, it's all, it's, all, it's all here in the simplest movement of a step, right? We, we are very mysterious beings in truth, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, steps are a good metaphor, really, because steps move you away from the present towards a goal. They move you towards the future. They move you away from the past towards the future. But but people are often surprised when I when I remind them that the future and the past do not exist. That there is no such thing as a future. There right. is no such thing as a past. They're just abstractions. They're just ideas. You know, the future is just made up of anticipations, and the past is made up of memories and also some, you know, recordings of the past, like photos or videos or whatever. But right. in reality, there is never a future or a past. There is only, you know, a flowing now. Right. And I, th I think that was his breakthrough, you know, the fact that, there, you know, there wasn't a, a sequential group of steps. It, there was simply the, 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 the step that he's taking now is the only step. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, nice idea. Yeah, I've got a poet. I don't know if you remember my poem called "The Flow." That's a similar idea. Oh yeah, similar idea. Yeah, because that's about. Uh, we're getting close to the break, so before. Oh, okay. we, Yeah, we talk about more stuff. Let's uh, let's take a break. I'm with Steve Taylor. We're talking about his book, which is called "The Clear Light," a book of uh, spiritual poems. Um, let's listen to these messages from Unity. When we come back, we'll read some more. So join us then. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. All right, welcome back to today's show. If you missed the first half, you're in for a real treat. I'm with Steve Taylor. He's a lovely man from England, and he's written several books on spiritual themes, spiritual poetry, and meditations. And the book that we're looking at is uh, from an Eckhart Tolle edition from New World Library. It's entitled The Clear Light. And I'd like to read another poem uh, called The Guru, and uh, it's right up my street because I'm a very, I would call myself a nature mystic. And uh, so this, this poem fits very nicely with uh, my worldview. But uh, see what you think. The Guru. I love to sit with my guru so that I can absorb his radiance. I love to ask him questions so that as he answers, he looks directly at me. Then the whole room shimmers with golden light. My mind slows down and my being opens up. 
and my life energy flows softly through my body. My solid skin and bone turn to vapor until there is no outside or inside, and my ego self disappears like a ghost. But I have another even greater guru, the world. I love to watch the clouds glide across the sky, flowing and foaming so gracefully. I love to walk among the trees and feel their calm, wise sentience. I love to gaze across the hills and fields and sense the landscape's ancient soul. As I watch, I'm filled with reverence. My being falls still and silent like a dumbstruck lover. Waves of ecstasy flow through my body. Revelations pour into my mind and I'm lifted high above myself, emptied out and purified by the beautiful isness of the world. The space of the sky is my own space. The soul of the landscape is my own soul. And my guru is ever present and everywhere. Beautiful poem, lovely, isn't it? Thank you. Yeah, it's nice, nicely read again. Beautiful. So, uh, who is your literal guru? Well, the guru I was writing about in the first part of the poem was a guy called Russell Williams, who's yeah. uh, passed away now. He died, uh, I think, nearly three years ago. But he was a spiritual teacher here in Manchester. Ah, um, okay. Who was a very wasn't very well known at all. He only didn't publish any books until the age of 93. I persuaded him wow. to, to write a book towards the end of his life. Right. To kind of summarize his life and his teachings. So I used to visit him every well, week know, or two. There's a number of... Uh-huh. I was going to say there's a number of people like that, you know, who choose to remain anonymous and uh, yeah. and yet are doing wonderful work, right? And that's, that's a role. So some are, yeah. you know, meant to be well, more well-known be on the Watkins list, etc., <laughs> and then others do, you know, the work quietly. I, I, I had a, a, a teacher myself um, back in the day, you know, that who was not known at all, and yet he gave uh, advice that I, I am, still resonates with me today. You know, it was really transformative. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think a, a lot of um, spiritually awakened people are completely unknown because they don't promote themselves. Yeah. They don't really have a desire to be well known. Maybe they don't even know that they are spiritually awakened. They're just That's really, true. really altruistic people, really kind people, and they have a sort of incredible sense of well-being and contentment about them. But um, you know, so I think you know you need, you need to be careful when people proclaim themselves as spiritually awakened. You know, when they start their, yeah. you know, they start their career as a spiritual teacher by proclaim, 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 sorry, proclaiming, proclaiming themselves as enlightened and trying really hard to attract followers. You know, they're the people you should, you know, maybe think twice about or at least investigate more deeply before you start following them. Well, you know, there was a wonderful spiritual teacher named uh, H.W.L. Poonjaji, um, and uh, he, he was active in, in northern India back in the 90s. And uh, so many Westerners came back from his ashram, you know, and proclaimed themselves to be his, his uh, <laughs> Dharma successor, right? And it was kind of funny after a while because you had like 10 or 12 people all saying that they, they were the one. 
Well, oh, maybe right. they were, you know, because in their minds, they, they were given the transmission or whatever. So they felt they were equipped to teach. And mm. I, I don't dispute that, but uh, mm. it's kind of ironic, though, that <laughs> there's so many yeah. people that came out. But, you know, the good side of that is he, he must have been a very powerful and influential teacher, you know, to have uh, imbued wisdom in, in so many people. So that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you have to be careful because... You know, some people may believe that they are spiritually awakened without actually being awakened. Yeah. Some people may, may be attracted to the role of a spiritual teacher because they are narcissistic. And if you think about it, it's yeah. a great place for a narcissist, you know, to be surrounded by followers and admirers and to sort of proclaim wisdom and to attract devotion. So, yeah, but I've known I've known a few in my time, you know, yeah. that have fallen into that trap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you just need to exercise some discrimination you know with some wisdom seems to me also that you can be enlightened in your head you know without being enlightened uh, in your heart so so you, yeah. you know you can have a great depth of wisdom you know conceptually intellectually um and yeah. even to fool yourself that you you know that you are fully integrated and enlightened whereas you you may not be you know um yeah what yeah, do you think you, of this what do you think of this though here's a question yeah. for somebody that's obviously spiritually wise um, people like uh, Jogyan Trungpa, you know, who was a great Tibetan mm -hmm. uh, master, came to the West in the 70s and 80s and um, wrote some wonderful books, inspired many people, founded centers that are still flourishing. And, and yet he was, uh, you know, a control freak and out and out alcoholic, um, died in a car crash. So mm -hmm. does, does the fact that, you know, you have these um, uh, flaws, right? You're not you're not infallible but you could still be an authentic teacher. Is that correct, do you think? I'm not sure, really. I, I think there is something about the role of spiritual teacher which uh, makes people, you know, maybe that if, people, if someone's got a sort of a tiny grain of narcissism or egotism inside them, it gets right. inflated by the role of spiritual teacher. It's very right. difficult to handle. You know, when you, when you attract so much devotion and when people, you know, really allow you to behave any way you like, you know, and you, you lose your you can lose your moral compass. You can yes. believe that anything you do is acceptable. And you know, if you do appalling things, and people still say, "Oh, it's some kind of a, it's some kind of divine play, or it's some kind of spiritual game he's playing." Right, the grace of the guru, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you lose your moral compass. So it's it's quite a tricky role to play. I wouldn't want to be a spiritual teacher. <laughs> it's, it's too. It's uh, well, I wouldn't want the attention for 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 one thing. You know, I like to live quietly. Well, but um, being a, a minister, you know, because that, <laughs> that tends to happen to ministers too. You know, they they love you and hate you. You know, often at the same time. So you know. Yeah, it's a bit like fame. You know, a lot of people find fame very difficult to handle because of the attention and the adoration. So you've got to yes. be a very stable person, very integrated person, I think, to be a spiritual teacher. I found the poem we were referring to earlier. By the way, it's called uh, "The Small Things." So uh, let's talk oh, about yeah. that because. You know, when I'm when I'm uh, attached, not attached. What's the word? Attracted by nature, influenced by natural scene. It's it's not usually in the dramatic sunsets or whatever. You know, those 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 can be nice too, but it's in the very simple things, the small things. You know, the, a leaf or a a sense of or a smell even. So I like this poem because it's all about the the small but wonderful thing, miraculous things that are in a in a home. So. Would you read that for us? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, this is called The Small Things. 
These days, it's the small things that catch my attention. I'll always feel awestruck by sunsets, storm clouds and rolling hills. But I don't need to go out of my way to find beauty. I see more than enough inside my house. This morning, I watched a wooden spoon floating in a sink, motionless, face down, with groups of soap suds circling slowly around it, like cells in some amniotic fluid. Then I steamed some milk for my coffee and watched enthralled as tiny bubbles flickered and popped inside a snowy mountain of froth. Then I sat down to drink my coffee and noticed a strange projection on the wall above. A hazy shape of sunlight filled with swirling faint grey lines that danced and wove into one another, throwing off quick flashes, then slowing down and becoming still. It was only later that I realised it was the sunlight reflecting off the water in the sink and shining onto the wall. My kitchen is filled with miracles. The sacred and profane are one. Each moment, no matter how seemingly mundane, contains the same sublime beauty as mountains and skies, if you look closely enough. Again, lovely poem, and uh, I love that line, you know, if you look closely enough, right? If you pay attention, in other words, um, yeah. then things it's funny, yeah. to appear, yeah. Yeah, it's funny, as, as I read that, I relived the experience. It's based on, a, you know, obviously on a real experience. So I was reliving the, mm -hmm. the intensity of the experience. And uh, I guess it was just one morning where I, when I was alert and attentive and really living in the present. And it was as if a, a layer of familiarity fell away. And suddenly every small thing was fascinating and beautiful. And it was a, kind of a lesson that, you know, I always remember because... It's always, that's always the case, you know, there is always this beauty and wonder around us in the most mundane things, but we just often don't see it because, you know, we, we, we think that beauty is elsewhere, outside the present moment, when in reality, it can't be anywhere else except the present moment. Along those lines, you know, at the end of 2020, there were a lot of uh, memes and threads on the social media about... Uh, Thank God the year's over. You know, it's been awful. Um, 2021's got to be better. Um, you know, thank goodness we got a new chance, etc. And and actually, I found 2020 quite quite a lovely year in a sense, even though I'm not trying to dismiss the the horrors of COVID and whatever. But but there were a lot of opportunities to slow down and to look and and mm. to, to be present to family and whatnot, so which I which I cherished, right? Um, and so yeah. I into this idea that let's get rid of this awful year. But then, you know, six days into this new, wonderful, fresh year, we get an insurrection, attempted insurrection in the capital of the United States. And then, um, you know, uh, COVID is raging even more of a, uh, markedly than it did in 2020, etc. So it's yeah. like, you know, we just can't say one place or one time is terrible. And, the, you know, the new place, the new time is going to be great because just not mm. like that, is it? Where, wherever you go, there you are, right? Yeah, that's right. You just got to be grateful. I think, you know, another possible positive aspect of this horrible pandemic is that it's given people a sense of gratitude. You know, if you are healthy, 
you know, if you are, you know, not in danger from the virus, yeah. then you can really appreciate your life. And right. you can, exactly. it, it, it's a reminder of death as well. You know, we forget that we are mortal creatures. We forget about death. And, you know, death is, people often think that contemplating death will make them anxious. They're afraid to do. But actually, if you contemplate death, it actually, it's actually quite liberating because it makes you re realize how precious life is and how temporary and fragile it is. And, you know, it makes you value each moment. It makes you value the people in your life. And life becomes, a, you know, a, a journey of appreciation. You know, many spiritual systems, you know, teach that, right? That, you know, go, go and meditate in a graveyard or contemplate mm -hmm. death. Um, so, some yeah. have skulls on their desks, right, to remind them of, uh, of death, etc. And it, 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 the Sufis say, die before you die. It's the idea yeah. that... You know, if you if you don't look, if you don't pay attention to the inevitability of death, you can't be fully alive, really, I don't think. That's right. And maybe when you do that, you, you begin to sense that there is something beyond death or that death may not be the end. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's one thing I found in, in my role as a psychologist. I do research on people who uh, who've had spiritual awakenings. Usually it's uh, following uh, a long period of crisis in their lives, like a period of um, depression or stress or maybe a bereavement, a diagnosis of cancer, maybe a period of addiction. But they go for a kind of a transformation and almost as if their ego self dies away and a new self arises inside them. And one of, one of the ways in which they change is, is that they, they're no longer afraid of death. They, they, don't, they don't necessarily want to die, but you know, they, they're accepting of death, you know, yes. they're, they're not fearful of it anymore. Right. Interesting. You know, on a personal note, uh, it was the uh, 70th anniversary of the church, uh, my former church this weekend. So I was listening to the service and uh, one of the elements of the service was uh, a meditation done by my late wife. Uh, my f first wife, she died of breast cancer. And, um, so the first time I'd heard us speak, really, and certainly do a meditation for several years, and it was quite impactful listening to her. But then uh, afterwards, uh, we went to the back porch, my, my wife and I, today went to the back porch, and um, there was a coin on the ground. And my wife likes to collect dimes, you know, she thinks they're lucky or whatever. She thought it was a dime, but she, she bent down, and it was a, a Indian coin. It was a 50-pace uh, rupee. And um, and you know that's fairly rare to that for that to show up in in uh, in Fort Worth, Texas. And and my wife, my first wife, and I had met in India, and so I began to think, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, um, is that a message? Did she did she leave the coin? Uh, certainly, it was meaningful to me. Maybe you know, in some strange way, I left the coin. I don't know. I, you know, not literally, but I needed to see that or something. What do you think? And I, I thought. That was an interesting um, happenstance hmm. there. Yeah, it's um, it's some kind of synchronicity. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I've uh, you know, in, again, in my role as a psychologist, I've done research into psi phenomena, and right. uh, you know, and, and a lot of mediums. I've done research into mediumship. A lot of mediums are probably charlatans, you know, just trying to make a quick book, or maybe they're just deluded. But there are some genuine mediums who who have amazingly successful results, which can't be explained away. Right. So I think it's even possible that, you know, people who are deceased are still around us. You know, it, it yes. may be possible. I'm open-minded about it. And they may be 
in some way influencing our lives or yeah you know? that's that's what it felt like you know mm. it was it was like a saying a hello or something you know and a nod um, yeah there was a similar story that i read there was a, there's this um a scientist called michael Shermer, and he's kind of like a, a radical skeptic he, he's very dismissive of anything which seems unscientific anything which seems paranormal or spiritual he just dismisses it completely but he's told this story recently of um can't remember the exact details but he was um he was with his wife and it was their anniversary and his wife was thinking about her deceased father something along those lines and suddenly they heard this song playing uh from the garage and it was the it was her it was her father's old transistor radio which just suddenly started working at that moment and he was playing one of her favorite songs it was a really mm-hmm. bizarre phenomenon but again it was like a kind of sign yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm inclined to believe it. You know, I don't want to be woo-woo about it, you know, not believe everything that shows up. But, uh, but yeah. sometimes it seems like it's too too much of a coincidence, a synchronicity, like you said, to to not pay attention to, you know. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's do nothing for a while. I'll read the, the <laughs> poem, uh, I Love the Days. And I love this because uh, productive and doing nothing is very uh, powerful, I think. It mm. says, I love, I love the days of doing nothing. When time stops hovering over my shoulder, pointing and shouting directions. I love the days with no direction. When we ignore itineraries and turn off road and wander through open, wild spaces without moving forward or backward. I love the days of no expectations of not deciding anything in advance or not deciding anything at all, depending on the needs of each unfolding moment. I love the days of not needing to be anywhere but now. I love the days of not being productive that become the most productive of all. I love the days of doing nothing that become gloriously full of being. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people can't do nothing. They feel like they're wasting their time. But, but yeah. it seems to me that doing nothing, you know, as I've written this book that I've just been working on, I've noticed that I spend lots of time doing nothing, you know, in between. Because it seems to yeah. me that's when the, you know, the higher levels of your mind start percolating and you, you can uh, get information that then you, you write down. You know, if I was trying definitely. to force it all the time, um, it doesn't seem to work. No, definitely. I think uh, doing is a, is a human disease. Isn't it? We should really be called human doings rather than human beings. <laughs> yeah. But if you think about it, you know, if you do, uh, if you look into the greatest inventions in human history, the greatest scientific discoveries, the greatest feats of creativity, they all emerge from doing nothing. You know, it was when scientists are daydreaming or sleeping, when people first wake up in the morning, or people are just sort of lazing about. That's when. You know, ideas occur to people. That's when the mind is most fertile, when you're relaxing, doing nothing in particular. Like you say, right. if, if you for, force your mind, if you make an effort, it blocks the, the creative potentials of your mind. So, yeah, I, I found the same. I mean, I'm, I mean I'm, you know, I'm quite a busy person. But, you know, I try to make sure that I do have periods of doing nothing just to kind of tune into those deep levels of being 
We've got time for one more poem. Um, if, if you've got a favorite, that's great. Otherwise, I'd like you to read the uh, the strangeness. But if you've got another one, I'm open to it. Uh, that's fine. I'll, re I'll read that one. Um, I should right. find it in my book. 87. 87, yeah. Yeah. Again, this, was, this is a poem that was based on my own experience. And again, it's about how uh, familiarity can blind you to the, the beauty around you. And how if you keep your mind awake, then you can tune into this perpetual strangeness that surrounds you. The strangeness. I've lived in my house for 15 years. I've walked the same streets every day, seen the same buildings, the same trees, the same sky. But I still see strangeness around me. This morning, like so many other mornings, I cross the road on my way to the shops. And I'm struck by the perfect geometry of the houses with their sloping roofs and rectangular walls and jigsaw patterns of bricks. I'm struck by patterns of shadows on the pavement, thrown by railings and gates and fences. I'm struck by the reflections flashing from the windows of parked cars. I'm struck by the waves and spirals of cloud above me in forms that have never been seen before and will never be seen again. Why should the familiar become mundane? As long as my senses are keen and as long as my mind is quiet, then the world will always be strange. Each moment arises as a newborn world without reference to the past. So, folks, it's okay to be strange. <laughs> Jim Morrison, Jim Morrison was right. <laughs> when you're a stranger, everything seems strange. No, but seriously, yeah. there, there is the uh, sense of mystery, isn't there, within everything that... Uh, uh, you know, you, the the, mo the thing you think is the most familiar, you know, becomes weird. It's the same with actually if you use a word over and over, the word disappears. It it, it makes no sense anymore. And you realize, oh, that word only has sense because part of my mind is keeping it there, you know, as a, a signal for some kind of uh, message or meaning. But if mm. I say it long enough, it, it disappears, right? And I'm, I'm back in that pre-literate world of the child that we talked about yeah. earlier, you know. That's right. Yeah, again, it's a question of uh, moving beyond familiarity. I think right. maybe there's some kind of survival mechanism in, in our minds that cuts out the realness of familiar surroundings so that we can do practical things, you know, and concentrate. But, um, you know, life is, for me, life is a, an exhilarating experience. I love it, you know, because it's so strange. You know, sometimes um, I had this experience yesterday. It was, it was a clear sky. I was looking up at the sky. The moon was there. The sun was there. And I thought, what am I doing here on the surface of this planet? Spinning around on its axis in the middle of space. You know? It's so strange, but, it, but it's kind of exhilarating as well. Let me tell you about next week's show, folks, because we're getting close to the end here. But after I've done that, I'd like to ask Steve if he'll impart to us three words or so that we can use this week uh, as we go into our world to help us uh, slow down, accept, be present, and enjoy that wonder that we've been talking about. So if you can come up with something, Steve, that'd be great. But next week, uh, homeopathic uh, doctor and spiritual teacher, Dr. Gabriel Cousins joins me. And he's going to talk about his spiritual autobiography. It's called Into the Nothing. 
which uh, it shares his mystic journey um, and, and talks about his life as a yogi, a Kabbalist, a practitioner of Native American spirituality, uh, leading to what he calls the six foundations and the sevenfold peace. So we'll find out more about that next week. Sounds interesting. But right now, Steve's going to convey just a little a word or so of wisdom for us. Be slow and be soft. I love that. Yeah, slow down. And, and like the, you've, got a, you've got a number of poems in your book which sound, you know, Taoist, the idea of softness and, you know, water yeah. is soft, but it overcomes the hard, right? That idea. Yeah. yeah. What a wonderful show. Thank you so much for being with us. I hope you can join me again sometime. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks a lot. And thanks for listening, folks. Have a great week. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA Unity ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 